This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. A lot going on this week, as usual, and we're going to get right into it with our first guest, and he is Rick Jones, a two-term state senator, three-term state representative, former Eaton County sheriff. But before all that, uh, stretching over 18 years, beginning in the year 2000, I believe, he was in law enforcement Rick Jones, nice to have you with us today. Yes, uh, I actually started in law enforcement as a 21-year-old newlywed in 1974. Wow. So you were like 26 years in law enforcement before you ever ran for office. Uh, Yes, Uh, and then I decided to run for sheriff and was successful. Uh, I completed uh, 31 years in law enforcement. Then I was asked uh, by many in the party to run for state rep. And I think that was uh, 2004, is that correct? Uh, Yes, I took office uh, in 2005. Yeah, actually, I think you served maybe one term uh, or part of one term with none other than Gretchen Whitmer, didn't you? Yes, I uh, served several terms uh, with Gretchen Whitmer, and she was also course in the senate right exactly uh, then you were elected to the state senate in 2010 very interesting 24 senate district uh, you had a big sea change in the middle of your tenure because reapportionment came along and switched your district from uh, eaton Berry, and allegan all the way over to lake michigan to eaton clinton and shiawassee and a little piece of ingham isn't that right that's correct. It was a uh, complete change for me <laughs> because the people in Shiawassee didn't know me. They don't get the same media as people on the other side of the state. Right. Okay. Well, um, with your long career in law enforcement, how do you look at what happened in the U.S. Capitol back on January 6th, the storming of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., and how it was handled and where we go from now uh, forward on what the investigation is going to turn up as to how this occurred and uh, whether capital security in Washington was as lax as people are accusing it of being. What do you think? Well, I don't believe the security was properly set up at the U S Capitol. It was very unfortunate, very dangerous, Uh, The folks that I knew from my area uh, that wanted to go down there uh, simply rode on a bus and thought they were going to have a peaceful assembly uh, well outside of the Capitol. Unfortunately, uh, there were some groups, uh, violent groups, that broke in there, injured people, injured uh, police officers, and I hope everyone is prosecuted to the fullest extent and sent to prison. Yeah, and then what about security at the state capitol on Inauguration Day this past week, Wednesday, um, where there was maximum effort, I think, made by just about everybody uh, from the governor on down to 
secure the Capitol grounds. They put up a fence around it, uh, temporarily at least. Uh, Do you think the state overreacted uh, to what happened in Washington in setting this up that way, or was that expected? Uh, Should it have been even more, uh, you know, extreme in in terms of the preparation for trouble? Uh, How do you look at that? Well, to some people it appeared comical because there were more police officers and reporters than there were protesters. However, there were credible threats of violence made by uh, the Boogaloo Boys and the Proud Boys and uh, other type groups. In fact, it was so valid, uh, there actually were militia groups in Michigan that told their members, don't go down there because you may get into something you don't want to be involved with. So I think the state police were right on with their warning, and uh, I'm glad that they took precautions and they kept uh, the peace very well. Now, this issue of firearms in the Capitol, open carry anyway, and, of course, people at the national level are saying, you know, some of these people down in Washington were people who were also seen in Michigan last spring at the state Capitol with open carry firearms in the Capitol, and there have been calls to ban all firearms in the state capitol. So far, it appears the state capitol commission has said no more open carry, but concealed weapons are still legal. Some legislators are saying that's not enough. We've got to ban all firearms at all times in the state capitol. And I just wonder, how do you look at it going forward? I mean, we've had like 186 years in Michigan without a ban on firearms in the state capitol. And I don't know what uh, guarding against the intrusion of firearms into the state capitol would take in terms of security, like uh, metal detectors and people, including school children, are going to feel like they're going through an airport. How do you look at all that? Well, I can tell you that people that have a concealed pistol license go through training. They're vetted, make sure that they're not felons. Uh, I think anybody that has the proper license can carry concealed, and I don't have any problem with that. I do understand the concern with having people walking around the Capitol with a AK-47, AR-15 slung over their, over their shoulder. Uh, the Capitol is very precious, and it, it, uh, they don't allow signs and sticks and things like that in the Capitol because it's paint, it, it's damaged, and it has to be repaired at great cost. So uh, I don't really see any necessity for carrying arms around like that and banging into the wall. But... Uh, we have had a history of no problems, uh, and I, I personally uh, would not have an issue with anybody with a proper license carrying a gun. Well, what if somebody uh, had a concealed weapon, but they weren't properly licensed? They shouldn't have that weapon. And they could still, if it's hidden and nobody can see it, they could walk right into the Capitol, and they could cause a lot of trouble, including injury and death. Uh, the people... Well, then what would have to happen is we would have to have uh, uh, magnetometers and x-ray machines and more personnel 
and the governor is talking over $5 million if we go in that direction. And that's something that the current uh, Senate and the state representatives are going to have to decide do they want to invest that kind of money. You think the legislature should be the ones to make that determination? I mean, the Capitol Commission never expected to be in a position to make this decision, and yet they finally did on open carry. And the legislature, at least the House, said, you know what, we really do not think the Capitol Commission had the authority to make this decision, but we'll go along with it, and we'll cooperate with the state police. So going forward, do you think the legislature has somehow got to get control of the decision-making process on this? Well, I think the Capitol Commission is doing a good job. I think they're very reasonable. But if we're going to spend over $5 million on new security, they're going to have to have appropriations. So then the Senate and the House will have to take action. Yeah, one of the reasons, of course, or the principal reason we've had these demonstrations and protests beginning last spring and on into the fall and into this year, not only in Lansing but in Washington, D.C., is because of the coronavirus and because of the reaction to it by various governments, particularly at the state level, lockdowns, uh, businesses being closed, uh, a lot of suffering going on. Uh, restaurants still closed. Uh, We're going to talk about that in a minute with Rick Jones, former state senator, state representative, sheriff. Uh, Plenty of things to discuss. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back with Rick Jones, former state senator, state representative, former county sheriff, 26 years in law enforcement. By the way, when Rick Jones was in the Senate, he got more bills enacted into law than any other legislator by far, uh, particularly in the Senate. Um Rick Jones, we were talking about uh, the suffering out there in the population uh, by businesses, by the people, because of coronavirus, yes, but because of the reaction to coronavirus by government and the way uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer in particular has responded to it. What do you think about all that? Well, I can tell you most of my friends are very angry I've actually heard from people today when I went out to have coffee, had coffee in the parking lot of a place, uh, and people come up and talk or drive up, and they're very upset. Uh, The restaurants remain closed. Uh, A lot of people are suffering because they lost their their good-paid job with their tips. Uh, Some people are making $17 an hour, and those are all gone right now. So people are very upset. And particularly when they saw on Facebook, our governor posted a picture with two other women, uh, sort of a selfie at the inauguration in a large crowd in Washington. So we've been told, don't travel. We've been told, uh, don't go to restaurants. We've been told, don't be in crowds, uh, uh, social distancing. And it appears, according to this uh, selfie, that that was violated. 
What about the decision of the state Supreme Court this past fall that the governor's executive order was unconstitutional, but the governor apparently just decided I'm not going to pay any attention to that. I'll end run it by having my Department of Health and Human Services issue orders to accomplish the same things in terms of lockdowns. Uh, How about that? Well, everybody saw through that charade, and people know that it's still the governor that's at the top making the decisions. So people are pretty upset about that. Uh, She says uh, February 1 we're going to open again, and I hope uh, that's the case. The numbers have gone down. Uh, We're getting people vaccinated, and I I think we're going to have a bright future if we could just turn this around before all these businesses go bankrupt. Let me ask you whether, though, people also are sympathetic with the governor in the sense that she was dealt a bad hand. She certainly never expected to have to face anything like the coronavirus. Uh, She's taken steps she feels guard the health and safety of people in Michigan, even though it's a tough pill to swallow for many, many businesses and individuals. Aren't they cutting her some slack? And, And don't you think People are sympathetic with what she's confronting. Do they think uh, she sh- could have, re- you know, realistically done anything different than what she's been doing? Well, the problem is uh, she picks winners and losers. So if you're a large box store, uh, like a Walmart or a Meyer, uh, you're wide open. And if you're a small business, you're closed down. And that's people see that as very, very unfair. The House and Senate are getting their backs up. Uh, They've been pretty irritated, even angry with the governor for nine months now for not cooperating with them and including them in decision-making on combating the coronavirus. But now Jim Stamas, whom you serve with in the state Senate, he's chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, he said, you know what, Uh, I think we ought to just hold up any appointments made by the governor on still until she opens up the economy. And over in the House, the new chair of the Appropriations Committee, Tom Albert, says, uh, you know, I am not prepared to pass any COVID-19 relief bills until the governor allows the economy to open up. Now, you know, if you're going to make, you can call them threats or demands like that, you got to back it up. Do the legislators dare go that direction? Well, uh, that's going to be the decision they're going to have to make here pretty quickly. Uh, If she opens up everything February 1, maybe it won't come to that. But if there's additional closures, I think there's going to be real problems. And that apparently is the only power left to them because uh, first she operated under a 1945 law, and now she's operating through her departments to control the state. Let me ask you about Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky. Um, He has been revealed to have talked to various militia groups, at least one, maybe more, over time, supposedly, quote, advising them, unquote, maybe trying to help them message in a more effective, less threatening way. That's what he claims. But a lot of Democrats, particularly the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, have said he should resign. This is outrageous where you have the elected majority leader uh, hobnobbing with these extremist uh, gun-bearing protest groups that 
can only cause trouble. What do you think? Well, I certainly don't approve of any violent groups, any groups that that uh, cause uh, chaos, uh, arson, hurt people. I don't agree with any of that. But I think it's good to communicate with groups and know what they're thinking. Uh, even back when I was sheriff of Eaton County, uh, we had a, a local militia group, and uh, the head of that group could call me. We'd have a conversation. Uh, they were quite reasonable back, back then. Didn't uh, I never had any problem with them. So uh, kind of turning the page a little bit, but still in the issue of law and order, President Trump on his way out the door commuted the sentence of Kwame Kilpatrick, former Detroit mayor, sentenced to 28 years in prison, had served only seven uh, and Trump commuted his sentence. He didn't pardon him, but he let him out of prison. Uh, was that a good decision? Well, it's not one that I would have made. Uh, I had to deal with the bankruptcy of Detroit, and I think many of the things that the former mayor did led to that bankruptcy. Uh, I opposed bailing out Detroit. Uh, certainly people in my district didn't want their tax dollars going to Detroit. And uh, I would have handled it in a different manner, but uh, there were the votes there, and that happened. What about uh, the $641 million settlement in the Flint water crisis, uh, which the governor negotiated? The the legislature has gone along with it, and it's going to involve paying through bonding some $30 million a year for 30 years. do you think that is a reasonable settlement? You know, I, I think they probably have been advised, take the settlement or it's going to get worse. But I think what's a bigger issue is we have to decide whether or not we want to have emergency managers in the future take over cities or not. Uh, because we're going to have more bankruptcies eventually. It'll happen. And what happens is once the state puts a manager in, then the state taxpayers are on the hook for all the problems. Yeah, I agree with you. Listen, uh, honestly, there are even more questions I could ask you about Line 5 up in the Straits of Mackinac, whether the governor is well-positioned to be re-elected next year. Uh, but we're out of time. It's just sad because we could talk to Rick Jones forever on all these issues. Thank you so much, Rick Jones, former state senator, state representative, former sheriff, for being our guest on The Political Insider. Have a great day. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the line with us none other than Brian Kelly, who I think people will remember was lieutenant governor of Michigan for eight years between 2010 and 2018. Before that, he was a state representative for two terms, 2006 to 2010. I remember I met you, Brian Kelly, uh, just after you were elected in 2006, 14 years ago. What a roller coaster ride it's been for you in the last 14 years. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Bill. Great to talk to you again. And uh, it is amazing how fast. 14 years has gone. And in some ways, it seems like a different 
a different lifetime ago and, <laughs> and uh and but in, in other ways you know it, it i still wake up in the morning and have to remember oh yeah i'm not in office anymore <laughs> Well, okay, after you were term limited as lieutenant governor in 2018, you became, I think your title is president of the Small Business Association of Michigan. And how has that worked out? I mean, how have you fit into life in the private sector? And I know you never anticipated uh, the coronavirus, which came along in your second year which presented issues for anybody head of SBAM that none of your predecessors ever faced. Uh, how do you look at the job and how your organization has dealt with it? Everything about how we operate has changed. I mean, we, we made a, um, a major transition straight away to, um, to focusing primarily on the virus, the response to the virus, and, um, and helping small businesses through it. And in some ways, it, it, it was uh, deciphering and curating information, translating information so that, you know, a small business owner that has never had to understand epidemiology and, and the, the types of, you know, the, the constantly changing government orders, um, just to, to help them understand how to, how to comply, how to survive, how to get through it, and that its resources became available, how to access those resources. So it's required us to be very nimble, and the uh, and uh, the, the the team was up for it. You know, we've got a staff of 27 people uh, at, at SBAM. We uh, we do advocacy, but we also do compliance and best practice education, and um, that those aspects of our operation have really taken um, front and center. With our members, and you know, just what with what they need, so it's an information source they can trust, and um, and it's, it really has at, at this time deepened our relationship with our members, and uh, and also it's been a, a period of growth for us. You know, there's been a, a lot of businesses that maybe before wouldn't have seen the value in, in associating with a, uh, a statewide association. Um, look. Look to us now for uh, for guidance. You know, as uh, they come out, they sometimes it, it helps to have somebody like me help uh, translate it into uh, re- regular uh, English, so that the, uh, the 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 people that are expected to to understand it and follow it are in a position where they can do so. Brian Kelly, uh, how many? Small businesses does SPAM represent, and what is the criteria for being a small business? Where do you leave off and say, okay, this business is too big for us? Yeah, so we have um, we have almost twenty nine thousand members, and um, it, for we're the largest association of our kind in, in the country by a lot, um, and it's part of the reason is because we've been around for a long time. The organization is fifty one years old. And um, and is constantly evolving and changing with uh, with with the needs of our members and small businesses. In terms of how to define a small business, you know, there's the official definition. We we just borrow the U.S. Small Business Administration, so that's point of clarification. We're the association, Small Business Association. The U.S. federal government has a department called the Small Business Administration. Um, they have a definition that says employees 500 and below. 
are considered small. We adopt that definition, uh, but as a practical matter, um, once a business is over 100 employees, um, there a lot of the things that we do, um, they they would uh, naturally do in house or do themselves. So um, I would say that our membership is highly, highly concentrated in businesses that have fewer than 100 employees, and especially those who have fewer than 50 employees. So, um, so we we tend to really specialize in smaller small businesses. So let's say 75% are 50 and below, and maybe 85 to 90% are 100 and below employees, would you say? Yeah, 93% of our members have fewer than 100 employees. Right. Well, okay, let's talk about the other aspect of what small business has gone through, and that is the suffering. I mean, uh, the restaurants have been closed, uh, supposedly now. They may be able to open on February 1st. The governor is indicating schools might reopen in March, so forth. But what about the suffering uh, and how the governor has handled it? Well, we we have really been focused on getting businesses, all kinds of businesses, the ability to open. Uh, you, you, there's, there's no grant program. There's no government subsidy or support that can make up for being closed. And that's a that's a, a top-line main message that we have is that we have to allow businesses to reopen. And there's a handful of, uh, of categories that tend to be very small businesses, restaurants, bars, um, movie theaters, bowling centers that have that were closed for most of 2000, uh, 2020 and um, in parts of, of this new year. And um, so we, we do see February 1st that there will be a, um, an allowance for indoor dining to return at 25%. That will help some of them. Uh, but, frankly, some of them, that's not, a, that's not enough for them to cash flow. And so it's, not, um, it's, it's just not enough. So we go right back to work and uh, trying to get, get us up to more of a national norm. If you look around the country, for those who have limitations and restrictions, 50% capacity is a much more common uh, answer. And so that's one of the things that we do. We benchmark against other states. We look at best practices in other states and outcomes in other states and um, and then and try to move Michigan toward a more competitive place. But we, we, we've seen an extraordinary number of um, of businesses, especially in the hospitality and um, and uh, restaurant uh, style businesses that have gone out of business, we won't know. You know, we'll have to look back to see. You know, how bad was it for those industries? Uh, but we know anecdotally that those anecdotes are really piling up, and um, and it's it is a dire dire situation for uh, especially for restaurants that that are not really their, their product and food is not really made for um, being warmed up later uh, and, and, uh, and transported. You know, if you're, if you're a fine dining type of an establishment, you're selling service and atmosphere, not just the food. And uh, when, and so if it's, it's a matter of, uh, of sending food by takeout, you know, it's just, you can't, many, many uh, restaurants cannot just, switch to takeout. It's, it's not that simple because their product is not made for takeout. 
And, uh, and so that, that's been a real challenge. And trying to get people to understand, too, that every part of the economy is interconnected with other parts of the economy. So, for example, when most office environments are closed down, even when you open up restaurants in, in a place like downtown Detroit, for example, if most of the market is gone, in other words, most of the market is not coming into work, and then the lunch crowd is gone, and that's, it, it, it just makes it very difficult. Then translate that over into you know, dry cleaners or small retail establishments that are really there to serve office workers who have been out for almost a year now. Um, these are the types of challenges that our small businesses are dealing with. And frankly, we, um, there are many of them that are not going to make it without a more broad allowance for return to, um, to normal patterns of living. Yeah, listen, uh, we can go on talking about this particular issue, but there's some others I want to ask you about as well. So let's take a small break here, and we will be back in a minute. Stay tuned with former Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly, now president of the Small Business Association of Michigan. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Brian Kelly, former lieutenant governor, now president of the Small Business Association of Michigan. I want to ask you, Brian Kelly, about the $641 million settlement uh, that Governor Whitmer negotiated for the Flint water crisis. And it's been... uh, approved by the legislature uh, at this point and by the Flint City Council and by a federal judge, uh, it would amount to bonding and $30 million a year for 30 straight years by the legislature would have to be appropriated to pay this off. Is that a reasonable uh, settlement, a good deal for the state, you think? Well, I, I don't really, I, I struggle to um, to characterize anything uh, dealing with this whole situation as, as good in any way, but I think it's, it, it, but it is good to come to resolution, um, on, at least on the civil part of the um, Flint water crisis. So I think having a, um, just getting to a point where all of the, the legal matters get settled is going to be a, an important component for, for people to move forward, both locally and with the state. So, um, you know, horrible overall um, circumstances, but um, to to begin that next chapter, I think this is one of the things that has to happen, and uh, it, it, that there's a settlement for the lawsuits, and to do it in a way that is kind of all-encompassing, I think also gives a, um, everybody a better chance to um, to, to move forward and um, and you know get get. Uh, past the, the court phase of this. What about the charges filed by Attorney General Dana Nessel against uh, your colleague, uh, Governor Rick Snyder, two misdemeanor charges? Uh, from my standpoint, uh, it doesn't sound to me like it satisfied anybody on either side uh, or on any side of this terrible issue of the Flint water crisis. I mean, many people say, you know, two misdemeanor charges after all this time and money has been spent in investigating Governor Snyder. And on the other hand, a lot of aggrieved citizens of Flint think this is chicken feed and that uh, the governor killed people, unquote, 
uh, and that he should pay a, a far worse price. So how do you look at all this? Well, I think the um, this attorney general has um, is abusing the the system right now, and unfortunately, it's been bipartisan. Her predecessor did the same thing. Um, you know, there's a um, there's this tendency to um, for the attorney general's office in modern times to be used as a political weapon, and I think the way that they, in, uh, with Rick Snyder in particular, the way that they charged. Um, exposed the politics that were involved. Um, they have not alleged that he has committed any crime. They are charging him with kind of a, a catch-all, undefined um, statute on the, on the books. They're, basically, they're saying Constitution gives him authority to manage. We don't think he managed well enough. Therefore, he has committed a crime. Um, there is, they have not even alleged any um, any statute anywhere that they can point to to say, well, Rick Snyder was supposed to do this specific thing. He failed to do it, and here's the penalties for it. They can't do that because it doesn't exist. Um, but they felt like they had to do something and um, in order to, uh, to to satisfy especially their political base. And um, I, I find the, the charges to be um, malicious in their intent, not founded. Um, and the in uh, really what it's going to end up doing is creating a, a tremendous amount of risk for um, for any the current and any future governors. Um, the idea that that a prosecutor could say your management does not meet a standard that I think is reasonable, therefore I'm going to charge you as a crime because that is what's happening. I know people are, um, people can look and point to a whole bunch of other things that people did wrong, but those things are not even alleged by anybody in this legal process to have been done by Rick Snyder. Well, let, let me jump and, in uh, here and just, just ask this. We haven't used the words willful neglect of duty. I mean, that's the actual charge that Dana Nessel has leveled against the former governor. And former uh, Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals, Bill Whitbeck, says that is a legitimate charge willful neglect of duty. He's a former state employer, and he says it's, you know, a, le- a legitimate charge in common law. It's it's not just failure to manage. It's willful neglect of duty. How do you answer that? Well, first of all, Bill Wetback was um, was part of the farce of the, um, the prosecutions that were sought and later dropped. By Bill Schutte. Bill Schutte. Um, under Bill Schutte and um, and also Todd Flood, I think everybody involved in that should have um, been subject to malicious um, prosecution, in, including Bill Wetbeck. So, frankly, I just don't find him credible. Well, uh, why were no charges, do you think, filed against the Genesee County Health Department or the Environmental Protective Agency at the federal level, for that matter? Because it looked to me like, they were culpable too of willful neglect of duty, right? You know what's what's um, truly ironic is that in terms of the um, reporting requirements, um, the charges that have been levied against Nick Lyon and Eden Wells basically say, "Hey, you should have done a public notice of uh, Legionnaires at McLaren Hospital." And um, if you look at the statute, the statute doesn't give that responsibility to the state. It gives that responsibility to the local public health department. So I I find that another kind of irony of both these charges and 
the charges that were levied previously um, and, and later on dropped under uh, the, the previous attorney general. Um, I, I find them to be the most ironic of all of them because they're charging a state official for not performing a duty that the law actually gives to the local public health, not the state public health. And um, so it, it is, it's, 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 it's weird to, to leave that out. But let me go back to um, the use of um, willful neglect. Um, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find um, any example where that was used as a sole charge, um, and, uh, say, at least not successfully, where you would say to somebody, hey, I can't find anything specific that you've done against any statute in all of government, but because your management was not up to to whatever subjective standard uh, somebody wants to apply, a prosecutor wants to apply, I'm going to charge you with willful neglect. It's normally something that is like an add-on. There's, they can point to it and they say, all right, you broke this statute. It comes with this exact penalty, and we think that you did it purposefully and you did it, and, and therefore we're going to stack on top of that a willful neglect charge. But to say there's nowhere any, there's nothing anywhere in statute that we can find to say that you've broken a law, but because your management wasn't as good as we think it should be, we're going to charge you with willful neglect. That's not a legit, legitimate use of the statute. That's, the, that's what you do when you are, are mad at somebody and you want to punish them, but, you, but they didn't break the law. And, th- I, and I think that's, that's what's happening here. They're, yeah. they're mad at somebody, and they, and they want to punish them for it, but they couldn't find a law that was broken. And so they're using the legal justice system to satisfy their anger, and, but in a, in a way that's not uh, – or, or, or to play to other people's anger to satisfy a political base. But they're not um, – they're, they're just not doing it in a, in a legitimate way. And I, so I think that they're going to have a really hard time um, justifying the process that they've uh, that they've gone through. And um, and I don't think we have any reason to, to believe that these charges will have any other um, effect than what we saw in the previous charges, which were all dropped. Yeah, listen, we're almost out of time, but just very quickly, um, the shutdown of Line Five by Governor Gretchen Whitmer, but. Enbridge appears to be defiant, saying we're just going ahead and building our tunnel. Where is this going anyway? Well, I, I think that that's um, going to be settled in, in court. Uh, clearly, Enbridge has a stronger position than the state. Um, and, I, you know, I speak of that from some level of experience. And we spent a lot of time um, on this issue. And, um, and I mean, it's the, that easement is their property, and the, the state can't just take it. I, it's a um, the, the ramifications on property ownership to for the state to just be able to take take uh, to engage in a taking like that is not. It really can't stand. Right. Okay. Listen, we could go on and on. There are so many issues, but you've done a great job explaining several things. The role of small business in Michigan in the face of the uh, coronavirus pandemic and the Flint water crisis. Thank you so much, Brian Kelly, president of SBAM, Small Business Association of Michigan, for being our guest. Thanks, Bill. Great to be with you. Have a great weekend. And we will be back next week with more.